the University of Virginia, their college team, their men's basketball team, are the 2019 NCAA champions this year. They made history last year, being the first team to ever have the top seed and be immediately bounced from the tournament by the bottom seed. They were defeated by the lowest ranked team, even though they themselves were the highest ranked team. This year, they made history for something different. They made history for being the first basketball team in UVA's history to be the national champions. The MVP of the game was interviewed, and he made this statement. He said, I am glad we got the chance to make history for the right reason, since last year we made history for the wrong reason. What he expressed was that deep joy of being able to do it over again, to get another chance to do right since the last time you did wrong. This is a good word for us today. In life, sometimes there are no do-overs. In life, sometimes you don't get another chance. Sometimes you break up and there is no makeup. So you ask yourself, if you've ever messed up, have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever sinned? Have you ever done something so egregious that it made headlines? You almost made history for your sin and everyone knows about it. Maybe you ask yourself, is there any hope for me to do right? since it's clear that I know how to do wrong. I'm here to tell you there's good news in our text today, and that is that God is the God of another chance. You know, it's been said that God is the God of a second chance. I found that that's not good enough. <laughs> I've used my second chance up a long time ago. And therefore, what we want to impress upon the church today is that Jesus is the God of another chance, not just a second chance. And I'm going to come out of Joshua 8. And in order to do this, I need to give you some context by bringing you back to Joshua 6 and 7. In Joshua 6, and, and I heard you all are going to be doing a series in Joshua. I don't know if I was supposed to let that cat out the bag. However, uh, you're going to be in Joshua, therefore. So, <laughs> hey, you know. Uh, so I'm just going to whet your appetite, Lord willing. In Joshua 6, you know what, if you know your scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, it was about the battle at Jericho, a victory at Jericho, where God's people, you've heard about it, they walked around the wall, a wall that was fortified, the walls fell down, they went in, and there was victory at Jericho. Joshua chapter 7 picks up, and it's all about a defeat at Ai. Ai. Well, what happened was they were so confident about six that they just rolled out in seven. And in seven, what they didn't realize is the text says that they had broken faith and there was sin in the camp. A man by the name of Achan took some things that he was not supposed to take. And guess what? It cost Israel defeat on the battlefield. Proverbs 14.34 rightly says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In chapter 7, they go out to be instruments of Yahweh's judgment on the nation. But now they become recipients of the judgment. They find out that the delivering God is also a disciplining God. May we also know that this helping God 
is also a holy God. And therefore, chapter 7 is about them identifying the sin, revealing the sin, and then responding to the sin. The response was that Achan and his whole family was killed. So the end of 7 reads like this. Then they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. What a lesson that we start off with to appreciate eight, God's second or his other chances. Seven teaches us that sin, the sin of one, often can affect many. The sin of one person in a family can radically affect the whole family. The sin of one person in a church can radically affect the whole church. The Bible teaches us that sin's remedy is always death. And yet, the remedy for Achan's sin was his own death. But isn't it good news for us that in the gospel, our sin is not required for our sin, but the Lord Jesus has laid down his own life for our sin? If you don't hear anything else today, just know that sin requires death. It's either your death or his. Trust Christ and receive his death. Verse 26 goes on to say, Then, once he was killed, the anger of the Lord turned. The burning anger turned then. Spiritually speaking, we need to not go too far and too fast past this. Hear the death of the disobedient did something about the anger of God. They had to put Achan forward. God made them go through this elaborate plan, bring him forward and put him to death. But oh, in the gospel, the Bible says that God put forth his son to be a propitiation, big word, that means the thing that would turn his burning anger away from us. God put his son up. And so here we are today, a people who have good news that God is the God of another chance because of Jesus Christ's death on behalf of sinners who will trust in him. Now, the text leaves off and says this, Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. The Valley of Acre. Acre means trouble. So even though sin has been dealt with, the text leaves them in what we call the Valley of Trouble. This also speaks to sin and what the Bible tells us about sin. That even after sin is repented of, sometimes we still find ourselves reeling from the trouble. There's still the unforgiveness of those we've hurt sometimes. There's still the, 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 the missed opportunities that we've blown sometimes. The lack of restoration sometimes. Oh, but there's good news. Jesus is the God of another chance. And when we repent, he doesn't leave us in the trouble, but he delivers us out of the trouble. Chapter 8 now, listen, verse 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Stop right there. Isn't that wonderful? The first thing we see is the comfort that God gives to his repentant people. Verses 1 to 2 are basically going to say that God honors repentance and he blesses obedience and faith. This is what we see, the comfort that God gives those who repent. 
This is the response to our sin. After judgment came discipline. After discipline came uh, repentance. And after repentance came God's restoration. Yahweh speaks comforting words to them. He says, I forgive. You know, we're in a day where people will say, I forgive you, but we can't be friends again. I forgive you, but it'll never be the same. I forgive you, but I don't have to reconcile. I forgive you, but I don't have to like you. This is not Bible. In Bible, forgiveness removes the gap. And reconciliation closes the gap. Hmm. I remind you of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.7 when he said he's repented already. Turn and forgive him lest he be overcome with sorrow. How about the words of the Lord Jesus? How much should we forgive? Seven times, Peter said? No. Seventy-seven times can't forgive 77 times if you check out after one. (laughs) These are meant to be encouraging, strengthening words. 39 times in the Old Testament, you'll hear, do not be afraid because God wants you to know, be comforted. But he also wants you to be strengthened. So this combination, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, that's only three times. Once when they were about to take on the task of the temple, And the next time when they were about to, well, twice that, when they were taken on the task of the temple and once when they were about to take the land. In other words, God says you don't have to be dismayed because you can do what I've called you to do because I've forgiven you. I'm with you. He restores our confidence that we can do what he says. So how does he honor our repentance? By forgiving us. How does he bless our obedience that comes from faith once we repent? Well, in a few ways, our text will show us. First, his participation. His participation. Note that Yahweh's back in the driver's seat. Chapter 8 starts off with Yahweh telling them, okay, now let's go to war. But in chapter 7, if you were to go back, what you would see is it starts off by saying that they just said, let's go to battle. And they said, we don't even have to bring everybody. This is clearly doable. Everybody fall back. We don't need you. And de facto, they said, we don't need God. But here, now, after they've repented, God is back in the driver's seat, running point. He's the one that's calling the shots. And so when you repent, you get God's involvement again. When we do our own thing, when we sin and do it our way, often he leaves us to ourselves. Sure, in his grace, he sometimes still shows up. But often, at a point, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, we don't come together with our God as long as we won't part with our sin. He gives them his participation. He's back in the driver's seat. Also, his wisdom. He articulates the plan. It was the exact opposite of the human wisdom of those who went out to battle. He says, take all the fighting men with you. They said, just take a few. Don't make everybody come. Now God says, take all the men with you. God's ideas are often the reverse of our ideas. And we would do well to listen to him rather than our own selves. His wisdom, his promise. He gives them a promise this go around. Look, see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Verse 2, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Oh, the promise that they would be successful this time. Oh, when you repent and God is the one calling the shots you can guarantee that he will give you the victory. 
And how about his kindness? This time he says, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Oh, if Achan would have just waited to the next city. If Achan would have just waited to the next city, God was going to give him what he stole in Jericho. God would have given him an AI. Write this down. Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. That is a beautiful, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Often, we get illegitimately what God had planned to give us legitimately. But when we get it illegitimately, it comes with sorrows. God gives them his participation again. God gives them his wisdom. He gives them a game plan that will actually work. He gives them the promise that they can do it and they will do it. He gives them his kindness and that he says, and it, I'll give you some, some, some perks to go along with it. He gives them his help. He tells them a plan. Look, lay an ambush against the city behind it. No guesswork here. God reveals what the plan is. So here we see he, they repent and God says, I'm back in charge. You'll do it. I'm with you. And guess what? You get to take a little something, something for yourself. This is good news for us today. Well, we keep going. What you see is that not only does God take us out and, again, honor our repentance, not only does God bless our obedience when we repent, but God prospers our work, the work of his people when we submit that work to his wisdom and his will. 3 to 17 is all about God's plan through God's man. That's what it is. We're about to look at God's plan articulated through God's man. And you know that this is, a, this is something we need as we go into this narrative because when you do uh, what you shouldn't do, you're on your own. But when you do what you should do God's way, you're with him. I like it. Drop this down. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, 12. To this end, we always pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. In other words, he says, this is our prayer, that God would take the things you do and prosper them so long as the things you do are works of faith done by his power. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Well, that's what you're about to see. Back to Joshua, verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he com commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before... We shall flee before them, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Now, let me just say, 
What you hear there is Joshua articulating God's plan. This is God's plan, but it's being executed through God's man, Joshua. Now, just I can't get into it. Maybe Pastor will get into it when he goes through this. But the numbers don't work here. 30,000 people are said to be sent out for ambush. Later on in verse 12, it's going to say 5,000 are sent out for ambush. And 30,000 is no way to ambush anybody. If you've got 30,000 people, I think you're going to be seen. And so what people have come up with is there's something wrong here, either scribal errors, don't want to get too much into that. The word for thousand can also mean officer. So some say, no, it wasn't 30,000. It was just an elite fighting group. Some say, no, 30,000 was the whole army. Only 5,000 was for ambush. But here's what's clear in verses 10 to 17. Joshua was leading. You see that in verse 10. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered up the people. 5,000 was a contingent, verse 12 says, for ambush. And 25,000 or so seemed to be a contingent for bait. The 25,000 comes out and says, nah, 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 you can't catch us. The people say, we already rocked y'all before, so come on, everybody, let's go beat them down again. They lead the people out, and the 5,000 then come around, and they burn the city. When they burned the city, the people realized in AI, uh-oh, we messed up. Now we're sandwiched between the people who burned our city and the people who let us out. So this is clear. They fall for it. Verse 14 basically says, And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. This ambush was like Ali's rope-a-dope. If you know anything about Ali and Foreman rumbling in the jungle, Ali pretended like he was defeated only so he could lure Foreman in so he could turn the tables. This is what Israel does by God's wisdom. They act like they were defeated only to lure them out and use their own pride against them. Oh, they said to themselves, we will do what we did before. Church, be mindful of present confidence based on past victories. This can undermine a present humbleness and a present dependence. Oh, my professor used to say, don't tell me what you believed. Tell me what you're believing. There are plenty of people who used to believe, <laughs> but what you used to believe is not helpful in the moment. You remember Samson, the Bible says that Samson said, I'll just break these little threads like I have in times past. And it says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Oh, let us keep watch and pray. Well, we see the plan and we see it through God's man. But the Bible does let, just so you show you some things about God's man here. Look at Joshua's leadership, his shrewdness. God gives him the plan in verse 2, ambush, but leaves to him the particulars. In other words, God didn't tell him to do all that he did. He said, set an ambush. That's what he said. Joshua came up with the particulars, so we see his shrewdness. He chooses the right means for God's right ends. 
This is a good thing in the Bible. Shrewdness is commended in the Bible. The Lord Jesus tells a parable about a shrewd manager who figured out a way to make sure he had a job when there was no job. This is, and then God says, they're more wise than my people. So church, let this be a lesson that we want to do God's will God's way. We want to learn how to do the right things the right way. You also see his diligence, right? He rises early and he rallies the people in verse 10. Someone said, right, that's the one thing that kids have to learn. You know, when they're young, they sleep until their bodies won't let them anymore. Older people, mature people, they know they have to get up to get things done. He gets up and gets things done. You see his courage. He leads the pack despite the hazards. If you go back to chapter 7, he didn't go out with them. They went out and they were defeated. You would think that Joshua would send them and say, okay, guys, this time I think you're going to make it. I'll be here praying. <laughs> but he doesn't. He leads the pack. Verse 5, he says, I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. Verse 11, all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side. You see a leader who's with his people, a leader who's leading his people, not by ducking the hazard, but actually taking charge in it. You see his commitment. The Bible says something interesting in verse 13. It says that he set everybody in their place, and then it has a but. And you know but is a way to, to contrast. Everybody was in a safe place. It says, but Joshua spent that night in the valley. We don't know why he spent the night in the valley, but we know is that he made sure everything was everything, and then Joshua went down. One, one commentator, one preacher says he was probably spending the night in prayer. The text doesn't tell us. It just says once he made sure everybody was safe, but Joshua spent the night. Look at Joshua. What a leader. Lastly, you see his dedication. In verse 18, the Lord says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. If you skip down, verse 26 says, But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devastated all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. In other words, what we see is Joshua, obedient to the commands of Israel, uh, to, to Yahweh. And it says here he's dedicated to not just starting the work, but finishing the work. Starting the work and finishing the work. What I just ran through is what we call divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Yahweh's instructions, but Joshua's execution. Yahweh gives the city into their hands, but Joshua raises and stretches out his hand. He prays as though it depends on God, and then he moves out as though he's going to be held accountable for his participation. This is good. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that God is looking. His eyes go to and fro looking for someone to give his strength to. He gives his strength to us so that we, what Paul said, we toil and we labor with all his energy that so powerfully works in us. I like what the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says, pray the Lord to save your hearers and then drive at them as though you could save them yourself. Trust in God and then employ such logical arguments as may convince the judgment. Such empathetic appeals as may touch the heart. 
so that if effects depend on causes, you may see them produced, God's hand being with you. Saints, may God be with you as you go to do his work, his way. He doesn't tell you all the details. Use shrewdness. Use dedication. Use commitment. Use prayer. Use all the tools in God's tool belt to do God's work, God's way. And what we find in 18 to 29 is when we do God's work, God's way, we win. 18, then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin, which we just read. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand. 19, and the men of the ambush rose out quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devastated all the inhabitants of Ai, devoted, excuse me, all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word the Lord had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day, and he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Now, that's the story. You notice any parallels between what happened to Achan and what happened to this king? The very thing that was plan for this king happened to Achan and his family. In other words, saints, God is gracious, but sin always has a price. And what is meant for those who reject him? Sometimes we put ourselves in position to be recipients of similar circumstances. God gave him victory, and the victory comes to him. It comes through him, but not by him. Saints, when you do things God's way, victory comes to you, sometimes through you, but never by you. The victory is in Jesus. I just heard your pastor's message on that from 1 Peter, got rocked. I said, yes, I'm in good standing. Victory through Joshua. But the Bible talks about a 
greater Joshua, doesn't it? A greater Yahshua that gives victory. And guess what? The better Joshua also had his hands stretched out, didn't he? But instead of a javelin toward Ai, he had his hands stretched wide, hanging on a tree. He too didn't bring back his hands until death was defeated totally. It was total obedience. They said, come down from the cross. You saved others. Save yourself. He knew if I take my hands down, I can't save you. <laughs> he stayed steadfast and committed till he could say to Telestai, saints, God honors our repentance. He blesses our obedience. He gives us his participation. He gives us power to fulfill the resolves that we have to do good. He gives us the ability to fulfill works that we do in faith for his glory through his power. Is that what you want? He's a good God. God of another chance. And he'll do it for you. I like this. The Bible is showing you that when Joshua, God's man, lives out God's plan, he receives God's victory. Well, can I just close with a little response from the end of the text? It's really our standalone sermon, but it actually gives us our application points, if you will. And that is the response to the grace of Jesus is to continually commit to living our lives for Jesus. A response to the grace of Jesus is to continue living our lives for Jesus. First of all, 30 to 35, rest in and glory in the cross of Christ. I'll tell you why I say that. 30, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Look, this is Old Testament, so they had to offer certain kinds of offerings. Burnt offerings were to make things right with God. Peace offerings, also called fellowship offerings, are offerings that are horizontal. It's peace with one another. That is exactly what happens, that there is, uh, they're right with God, and now they're right with one another. Well, this is exactly in the New Testament what the cross is about. The cross is the great altar on which the, the, the appropriate burnt offering or the slain lamb was on that cross. And what his sacrifice does is it makes us right with God and it makes us right with one another. There's a vertical and there's a horizontal. Isn't this good news? So rest not on the altar that they used to do, but you want to rest in the altar, the cross, the one that God has given us to give us a right standing with God and a right standing with one another. This is what it means to live a life. It starts with us looking at the finished work of Christ and doing everything from that vantage point. Oh, but also thank God for his word, which is Christ and the spirit who writes the word on our hearts. Look at verse 32. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim. And half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. In other words, what they do now is they erect the law. 
and they post the law so everyone could live under it. They wanted you to know God's word so you would live according to God's word. Oh, but in the New Testament, we don't have the law posted up on the wall per se, but we have something even better. The Spirit of God said, I'll write my word on your heart. I'll write my law on your heart. So what we do is we thank God for Christ, the word who became flesh and dwelt for a while among us, and who gave us the Spirit who writes the law on our hearts. This is how you respond to the grace of Jesus, by living thankful for the fact that he gives us godly inclinations to know God's word and to obey it. Oh, but the last thing is actually live a life under that word. Don't just be hearers only, but doers. Look at 34. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the cursing, or the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Here's the conclusion. They began to sit under that word. James would tell us, don't just be a hearer of it only, but be a doer. Our response is living the life. The response of the grace of Jesus is to live a life committed to Jesus. And that includes resting in the cross and what he's done, both to solve our vertical issue and our horizontal problems. It's to glory in the fact that we have the spirit who will write the law on our hearts and then live according to his word by being hearers and doers. Is this good news for you today? This is what he does. This God of another chance does it because of what Jesus Christ has done. I like this. I heard a story. I don't even know if it's true or not, but I thought it was apropos uh, as we come in for a landing. During the Revolutionary War, there was a man named Peter Miller. He was a pastor. And the town loved him, but there was this one antagonist who hated him. So the antagonist used to always harass him, hated him, and Again, he actually got under Peter's skin, but, you know, he stopped, tried to be an upstanding pastor. One day, he betrayed the, 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 uh, his town. He betrayed his town. It was actually before. It was General Washington at the time, before President Washington. And so he actually was, was, was a traitor, and so he was sentenced to die. He was actually sentenced to die. Uh, Peter Miller, upon hearing that he was sentenced to die, he made a trek and he went to General Washington and uh, he said, General Washington, I'm here to plead for a pardon for this man. Washington said, no, no pardons will be given for your friend. He said, oh, excuse me, this is not my friend. <laughs> In fact, this is my worst enemy. Washington said, well, whoa, this changes everything. You mean you would come and ask for a pardon for your enemy? He said, well, I will pardon him, not for him, but for you. Well, he begins to walk about 12 miles from where he received the pardon to go take it to where they were about to execute him. And so when he sees Miller coming through the crowd, he says, oh, there he is, Pete Miller, coming to see me get what I deserve. Miller said, I'm not coming to see you get what you deserve. I've come to see you pardoned for it. He gave him a pardon. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus doesn't want to see you get what we do deserve. He gave his life to see us pardoned from it. Look at this. Instead of watching us get what we deserve, he took what we deserve. What grace that would give us another chance by enduring the suffering that we deserve. 
He's the God of grace. Is this good news for you? I pray that you will walk away knowing that sin has consequences. Sin will disrupt. But if we would just repent, God would honor our repentance. And God would forgive our sins. And God would prosper our resolve to do good and to do right going forward. To close, I turn you to Micah 7, 18, 9. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Take joy in that. If you're not a believer, this is step one. Acknowledge your sin. Come to the sin bearer. Repent from your sin and receive the forgiveness that he offers for sin. Amen. Let's pray.